I don't know uh, exactly what the last uh, several weeks have been like for you as we've been going through our series, uh, One Ki- Kingdom Indivisible. Uh, it has been a really challenging series for me to teach and to preach on. Uh, it takes a certain amount of courage, I think, for us as a community to be willing to uh, talk about some of these issues and things we've been talking about, to uh, challenge ourselves, to look at things in some different ways. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who has reached out to me, who shared with me, who's let me know um, what you've been thinking and what's been resonating about you. Uh, and it's important, uh, I think, for us. It's it's such a timely, it's a timely lesson to talk about the kingdom of God here in the middle of all of sort of the turmoil and things that we're facing as a country and as a nation. As we get started here today, I want you to think about this uh, basic question. Uh, what do people know about you? Now, if someone were asked to describe you, what would they say? And, and I wonder if this description that other people may give of you would match the description that you have of yourself. Now, it would obviously depend upon who that person is and what your relationship is like with them. I would imagine, for example, that your spouse may give a very different answer than someone that you work with. Uh, it's been really fun for me over this uh, last this time of quarantine when I've spent so much time with my kids uh, to see their personalities develop, to see them change kind of who they are. Um, I'm learning to enjoy their sense of humor more. Uh, they're just kind of more fun to be around as they're growing up. and. And it's been really neat to get to know them and to get to see who they're becoming. And and maybe, you know, if you've had kids or you have kids right now, you can sort of think back to those same times where you saw their personalities develop and you saw them start to become someone. Now, I have sort of historically been known as a person who's a little bit hard to get to know. Uh, An old friend of mine uh, who's named Tommy, he said this about me. He said, people only know about me what I want them to know. And he meant this as a compliment. I took it as a compliment. Uh, what he said was really true about me, particularly of that time. Uh, I, I was very careful with how far in I let people, uh, what I let them know about me. I, I carefully cultivated uh, what it was that people knew about me so that I could control my own image. I, I really wanted to be viewed uh, a certain way, and it was so I, I just let people know little bits and pieces about me. But because of this, uh, there were times when people have had certain impressions of me that haven't always been accurate. Um, Megan here could attest to the same thing because uh, she was coming into church when she first started uh, working here. I would just be walking around, uh, you know, doing something, uh, working on whatever, going around the building, wherever. And Megan uh, stopped me a couple of times and said, are, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. This is just my face. It just looks like this. I just look like something's wrong. A couple of weeks ago when we uh, were meeting outdoors, I was walking around getting all the sound system figured out and getting things set up. And uh, Jason said I look like an angry bird, uh, which was true. I mean, when I get locked into something and I'm just walking around, I definitely have resting Bryce face. Uh, It's just something that happens. But because of this, uh, some people have made some assumptions about me. They've assumed that maybe I'm not a very nice person without really knowing me uh, because I don't smile as much as other mammals. And uh, I even know uh, there was someone that knew me just really peripherally that thought that I never laughed, uh, like ever. 
Now, my close friend quickly dispelled this idea with her, uh, but there is an underlying principle to all of this that I think is true. The kind of relationship that you have with someone determines what you know about them. Now, there are two problems that we are going to uh, try to address this morning in this message, and it stems from this one basic core question. Who or what is the church? Now, firstly, and you may not agree with me on this, but I get the sense a lot of times that we don't really know who we are as the church. Uh, many of us may not have a very developed sense of what the church is or what it means to be the church or what the church should look like in the world around us. And secondly, and I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with me on this one, the world around us doesn't really know who we are either. Now, this is for a lot of different reasons. Uh, maybe they have a shallow version of who the church is based on media or TV or movies, but that isn't always the case. Because what people think about the church depends very much upon what kind of relationship or experience they've had with the church or with other Christians. Um, and this is something that I've experienced a lot of times. I've experienced people who, who don't go to church who have had really positive experiences with Christian communities and therefore are open to talking about Christianity and faith. And I've talked with other people who've had really negative experiences and they want nothing to do with it. And I've experienced this personally just in my own life um, when people find out what I do. Now, this might sound a little bit weird, but being a pastor, uh, a lot of times when I meet new people outside of church, I don't immediately share with them that I'm a pastor. And the reason why I don't do that is because if I tell them right away that I'm a pastor, they may not want to be my friend. This is for a lot of different reasons. Uh, they think I'm not going to be very nice. They think I'm not going to be, or they think I'm going to be judgmental, or they think I'm going to try to convert them to Christianity in the first three minutes that they know me. So I wait. And uh, hopefully if they like me a little bit, which is not a given, uh, but if they think I'm friendly, they want to be friends with me, then as I get to know them a little bit better, I'll tell them what it is that I do. And I often experience a lot of surprise when people hear that I'm a pastor. And it's not because I have tattoos or because I maybe don't look like the stereotypical pastor. It's generally because of how I've treated them, that I have been a normal person and not some sort of drummed up stereotype of a pastor or whatever their experience has been. But it goes to show you that people can have all kinds of different experiences with Christians and with the church. And those experiences color how people view both Christians and the church. The reputation of both Christians and the church in our world isn't great. Uh, some of the criticism that we have received is deserved and some of it is based on misunderstanding or a stereotypes or misrepresentations of who we are. And this is why the story of what the church is needs to be told and why we need to understand it uh, completely so that we can both express it and live it out. Because whether we like it or not, the identity of the church is being fought over every day on the news, on social media, 
based on issues or voting or all different sorts of things. We need to know our story as the church because how can our identity be solidly founded on the kingdom if we don't know what our story is and what our purpose is? We have to have the right account about ourselves so that we can be known in the world for the right kinds of things. So again, what is the church? Now, I want to be very clear that this is not going to be a comprehensive study this morning. We are going to look at a few specific things and we'll actually continue our discussion next week. But it's, been, it's become quite obvious to us over the last several months that the church is not a building. Now, I know this is something that we know. Now, we used to you know, have that song, you can't go to church because you are the church and all those different kinds of things. But certainly over the last several months when we haven't been able to come here because of health regulations, we have seen how the church is much more than a building. But when we talk about the church, we are also not talking just about Sonoma Avenue. We are talking about the capital C church, the collective sum of those who proclaim Jesus as Lord. Now, we saw earlier in this series that God gave his people an identity when he called them out of Egypt and turned them into a nation. Now, Peter, when he was talking about the church, used some of the same words that were used when the people of God were established all those many years ago. So let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10 says this, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. The first thing that we see is that God certainly has a distinct vision for his church. He knows exactly what he wants the church to be. And foundationally, the things that makes us who we are is that we would be his people. This means that we would not belong to anyone else. And the one term that really sticks out to me there in those words from Peter is that we are God's special possession. That's not a term that I usually think of or have I, that I've even really used. 
when I think about how God looks at us and considers us, but it's like if God were to invite someone over to his home, we would be the thing that God would show to this guest, his special possession. And it tells me that we drastically undersell how valuable we are to God, that God treasures us. He wants us to be his and only his. Therefore, the thing that makes us who we are and the thing that makes us a church is that we are his people. We were once a people, he says, but now we are the people of God. And and what Peter is saying here is something that it's important for us to wrap our minds around because you have to remember he was speaking to Christians who were learning about what it meant to be a Christian for the first time. And these people had come from all sorts of different backgrounds, from Jewish backgrounds, from pagan backgrounds, uh, from all these different kinds of places. And his message to them was clear as a whole. You were once not a people, but now you are a people. Meaning, whatever or whoever you were before you came to know Christ, that was not your real identity. And what you are now, this is who you are. You are God's people. What God is calling us to overshadows whatever we have relied on to make us a people before. And we would be the receivers of God's mercy, which is a pretty big statement considering that we didn't have the mercy of God before. So this thing, this this relationship with God, this being his people is what makes the church who it is. But there is something else in this that we need to focus on, and that is the church is going to be different than any other group of people. Now, this is important for us because what is it that makes the church different than, say, a social group that goes out and feeds people or, uh, you know, a, a gathering that does good things for others? There's a crucial comparison here that that Peter gives us, which might help us wrap our minds around a, a little bit. There are those who see the cornerstone of Jesus as beautiful, and there are those who rejected the cornerstone. So let's look at it this way. There are different kingdoms that are being built. On one hand, There is the kingdom of earth that is being built. And when the kingdom of earth was offered the cornerstone of Jesus, what did it do? It rejected that cornerstone. It chose to make the orientation of its building, the thing that would be its foundation and set its course. It chose to make that cornerstone something else. It did not want the cornerstone of Jesus. But on the other hand, This kingdom that God is looking to build, its cornerstone is Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. And from this this cornerstone, it is orienting everything that God is making and building, and it is setting the course for the foundation. So we have to understand this metaphor in this way. The building that others would build, that other kingdoms would build, will not be built on the same values or stand for the same things as the church. Our foundation is different. Our orientation 
is different. We are different. It's a big concept for us, but it is so important for this reason. There is no such thing as a Christian kingdom of the earth. There is only the kingdom of God and every other kingdom. The church is the current manifestation of God's people in the world. In the Old Testament, God intended for the nation of Israel to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. And with the gospel, that identity was extended to anyone, to everyone who would have faith in Jesus. Some people say that the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. We are put here in the world as representatives of God's kingdom. We are living amidst the kingdom of the earth. This is why being part of the church and understanding what the church is supposed to be can be frustrating and even confusing at times because we are living in two realms at once. We are part of a spiritual kingdom living in an earthly realm. We live on the earth, but we are not citizens of the world. As, as Jesus put it in his prayer that we looked at the last few weeks, we are in the world, but not of the world. And as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. So we are living in a kingdom that is wholly different from the kingdoms of the earth. And even though we live in the kingdoms of the earth, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, initially, this teaching was easier for the church to accept. And the reason why it was easier for the church to accept is that in the first few centuries after Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity was basically a backwater, illegal religion. You met in secret. You couldn't confess your faith in public. And it was followed by a small minority of unimportant people in the Roman Empire. When everyone hates you and you have no power, it's easy to see the church as a spiritual entity that is wholly apart. And honestly, it's easier to look forward to leaving the kingdoms of earth for the kingdom of heaven because you see the difference between the two things. But something happened a few hundred years later that changed everything. In the 4th century AD, something awakened within the church. In the year 313, the emperor of the Roman Empire, Constantine, converted to Christianity. He made following Jesus legal. Then in 380 AD, at the Edict of Thessalonica, Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, can you imagine, within the span of 60, 70 years... You go from being illegal to converting the emperor of Rome to becoming the national religion of the Roman Empire. It is a crazy reorienting thing. And, you know, we could look at that kind of moment and we can say, well, look at what God did. Look at how God moved. Look at how God changed. And it's true that there were a lot of good things that came from Christianity being a legit religion. 
But something else happened as well. The church had its first taste of earthly power. And this taste of power awakened something within the church. The spiritual entity now knew what it was like to have earthly power. And as many of us know, when you have some power, you almost always want more. Since that time, the institutional church has had a problematic relationship with earthly power and influence. The Holy Roman Empire, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Reformation era wars of Protestant nation states, even the idea of founding our nation as a Christian nation. Each of these examples represents complex relationships between the spiritual entity of the kingdom of God and earthly realms of power. And if you've ever had a conversation with a non-Christian who is not ready to believe in Jesus, they will bring up some of these examples to you about how the church historically has been corrupted by power. As we engage with the world around us, we have to remember how seductive power can be. It's, it's not that we should always avoid power or not seek to have influence, but we need to recognize our tendency towards self-deception and justification of our actions when power is involved. In other words, we may be using power in a way that sets back the kingdom of God without ever even realizing it. Craig Blomberg is a New Testament scholar and writer uh, who I've really enjoyed. And listen to how he puts it. He says this, We are not called to control secular power structures, neither are we promised that we can Christianize the legislation and values of the world. But we must remain active, preservative agents, indeed irritants, in calling the world to heed God's standards. To put that statement simply, what he's saying is, is that our objective needs to be that we are the voice that will call people to God's standards in this world, but our objective can't be to do that through rules and regulations of a kingdom that doesn't belong to God. We have to be careful of that. I I mean, just to show you kind of how power can get under control, one of the unexpected effects of Constantine's conversion to Christianity was the rise of monasticism. What happened was followers of Jesus became disillusioned by the church's fascination with earthly power, so they withdrew completely. They wanted to remove themselves from the power structure, to live apart from the kingdoms of the world and just focus on the kingdom of God. This is not our call. We are not called to escape this world. We, we live within it. We bless those around us. But how do we do that? If we aren't supposed to use earthly power, how do we live as a spiritual community within the world of earthly power? I mean, shouldn't we be changing to change or looking to change things through every avenue that we have? What should we do and what should our voice be? I'm so glad you asked that question. I have been hoping that someone would. So way to go, you. And I'm going to answer that question with a question. What is it 
that actually makes the church different? What is it that's going to, again, set us apart? Because yes, it's belief in God, and yes, it's that we're oriented differently, and yes, it's that our, our, our faith is, is formed and in, in the foundation is going this direction. But what is it that makes us who we are? I mean, how can people distinguish us from others? Well, I want to point out something before we leap into that. And that is, as much as the church is different, the church is also the same as a lot of places here on earth, a lot of groups, a lot of organizations. And it's the same in this way. The church is going to be made up of diverse people who do not agree on everything. But these people are going to love each other and be joined by a purpose. Listen to this description of the church in Antioch from Acts chapter 13, verse 1. I, I guarantee it's probably a verse that you haven't given a lot of thought to. I know I hadn't. But listen to this. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This description of the leaders of this church in Antioch contains people from Africa, Asia Minor, a Jewish rabbi with Roman citizenship, and a cohort of Herod. Some commentators have said that this church was built on division. The point is, this was a diverse group from all different places, and it wasn't the fact that they agreed on everything that, they, that brought them together. They were brought together by Jesus to live out the kingdom of God here on earth. And the fact that the church was this way, that it drew people from these different corners, proves a very important point. Unity does not mean conformity. To be drawn together around the person of Jesus Christ does not mean that we think the same on every issue. Do not be mistaken. We are all in the kingdom of God being conformed to one thing, the image of Jesus. We are all being conformed to that, but we are not being conformed to one another. We are being conformed to Jesus, but not to one another. Some of you have not agreed with things that I have said in this series. And the bottom line is that you don't have to. I'm perfectly comfortable with you disagreeing with my conclusions. And in fact, I've appreciated the discussions I've had with people who have come and said, well, but Bryce, what about this? But the hard thing is, we don't always know what to do with those disagreements. The disagreements feel wrong because disagreement doesn't feel like unity. I know that it doesn't feel like unity because when we think of unity, we think of conformity. We think of everyone thinking the same thing, being the same way. And we probably prefer conformity because conformity is comfortable. It reinforces what you already believe and it, it makes you feel good about yourself. But real biblical unity is often challenging because you're constantly forced to engage different viewpoints 
viewpoints that are different from your own and then go to God and have him help you find the answer. Can I just say that if we all thought the same way, then the community of Christ would be so much poorer for it. Paul talks about the body of Christ as being a body that has different parts, that do different things, that have different skills, that have different talents, and how one piece can't claim to be another piece because we need all of them. Conformity is not what we should be after. We are conformed to Jesus, but we seek unity with people who are different than us under Jesus. Listen to the words of uh, Peter as he gives us some helpful instructions about how to be unified from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this passage puts several thing in, things into perspective for us. And it answers the question about how we have unity, just like it tells us how the church will be different than any other grouping of people. Let's start out with this. It says that we are like-minded. What that means is we know who the story is about, and we know it's not about us. We are united around our belief in and need for Jesus. The word that's translated as unity of mind comes from the words for common sympathy, or harmonious. I would like to think that Peter, who wrote these words, had a special place in his heart for this idea because as someone who often spoke before he thought, I bet he <laughs> could look back and see how much conflict he had created with people just based on what he had said. We are like-minded, but we're not all the same, and therefore what we say and how we say it matters. It just does. You don't need sympathy and tenderness and humility for people you agree with. You need these things for people with, from whom you are different. And Peter is speaking to a community of faith, to a church, when he tells them to have these things, to have sympathy and tenderness and humility with one another, to love one another, we are expected to practice these principles with everyone. But it tells us something crucial about the kingdom of God. The biggest difference maker in the kingdom of God is, yes, what we're built on, but it's also how we treat one, an one another and how we treat others. Unity in the kingdom of God begins with us. And we have to be able to treat other in the way that God is calling us to before we can treat anyone outside of these walls the same way. Christ is our king. 
We are all sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. We all operate within the kingdom of God. But if Jesus has changed us, then he is our king. And if he is our king, then we are accountable to him. And Jesus cares greatly about how we treat one another. I have seen, experienced, and even been a part of some of the most hurtful behavior within the kingdom of God. Assume the worst of people, classifying people into narrow opinions, assigning selfish motivation based on simple actions and flat out denying that we are a part of each other or part of something bigger. The kingdom of God has struggled with this. And people have divided one from another over things big and over things small. Sometimes our biggest disagreements are with those that we are most alike. It's hard for us, even as citizens of the kingdom of God, to do these things that Peter is asking us, and that's why he has to say it. I'm glad this uh, particular organization I'm about to tell you about exists, but it's sad that it has to exist. Uh, Rob Barrett uh, works for an organization in Michigan called the Colossian Forum, and their goal is to help Christians engage divisive cultural conflicts in ways that reflect Christ. In other words, they help people have difficult conversations, and they help them do it in a way that shows who Jesus is. Rob described their work by saying that they have observed that when Christians talk about certain topics, it's as if they immediately forget the basics of Christian behavior. It's as if certain issues are so incredibly important to be right on that it supersedes the essential ethic of loving each other. I know that many of you have had this experience. So what's the first step in us being the kingdom to one another within this context where there is a lot of conflict, where people are not agreeing on things, where there is certainly not conformity, and maybe often there is not unity. Well, we need to start at the most simple place, church. We need to listen to one another. We can't be unified if we won't listen to one another. Listen to these powerful words again from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Again, Peter is talking about how members of the church, how members of the kingdom deal with one another and look at what it is that they are supposed to do. Be like-minded, which means that you are putting a unity mindset first. We know that Jesus is what we are about. Be sympathetic. Be willing to hear where the other person has come from and to understand them. Love one another. Be compassionate. Extend your heart to them. And finally, be humble. Do you know why humility has to be in there? Because we cannot really effectively do any of these other things if we can't acknowledge that we are not more important than the person that we're trying to communicate with. And that's 
where listening becomes so important because when it comes to these issues, we walk into them feeling like we either have to be right or we have to change someone's mind to our point of view. Very rarely do we enter into these discussions that are going on wanting to listen and learn and understand. And if I'm entering a conversation just wanting to be right, then I am not listening to the other person. I'm simply, for, I'm simply formulating what my next response is to whatever it is they're going to say. And I am not being sympathetic or compassionate. And I am not putting unity first. But you know why we do this. Well, but I'm right. But you think you're right. But if you're right, then you think I'm wrong. Well, I'm not wrong. I'm right. So I have to show you why you're wrong. Because then that reinforces why I'm right. You see, like, we fall into this every time. Instead of walking into something and saying, you know what? We are unified in Jesus. And I know we don't agree about something. But let's talk about this because I love you. And let's just see if we can understand each other better. We need to be more committed to listening to you and understanding one another and expressing ourselves in a way that does not create division. Recently, uh, a Christian publication published two different articles. The first one was called Why Evangel Evangelical Christians Will Still Vote for Trump. And it was written uh, to show why many Christians are going to vote for Donald Trump. The other article was Pro-Life Evangelicals for Trump. I'm sorry, I misstated that. Pro-Life Evangelicals who are voting for Biden. There we go. Whew, that was an important point. So what this, what this uh, Christian post has done is that at least for a moment, this organization has said that how you vote does not determine whether you love Jesus. And it has presented viewpoints from both sides, those who are going to vote for Trump and those who are going to vote for Biden. And it, didn't, it did something which I think was really extraordinary in both of these articles. Neither one was trying to prove the other side wrong. All it was doing was trying to say, this is why we are going to vote this way. And in doing so, they allowed people who read these articles to agree or disagree, but it didn't try to change anything about what they were saying. They simply presented their points. It takes this extra step of having discussions from both sides of an issue, of not trying to prove the other wrong, but of simply trying to communicate and understand to be compassionate, to, as Peter put it, to seek peace and pursue it in these relationships. And this is very different than seeking to be right or seeking to change someone's mind. Because these people that you disagree with on whatever issue are not your enemies. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I hope that I have convincingly enough laid out a foundation to say that we should be different. The church should be different. And one of the hallmarks of how we should be different is how we treat one another and how we treat others outside the church. That we need to be committed to loving one another, to being humble, and to listening so that we can have the unity that God calls us to. Now, here's why it's so important that we come to that place. We've just spent 30 minutes talking about ourselves. 
as the kingdom of God, the church. And we haven't even touched on what the role of the kingdom of God and the church is out in the world because that is the biggest part of who we are, being ambassadors for Christ in this world. And I think the things that were said this morning needed to be said and should be said. They are important. That we need to learn to love each other and communicate with one another if we are going to take the truth of the gospel to the world. But it also speaks to the fact that we have to get over ourselves. That we have to move away from putting ourselves first and what we're getting first and what we think first and all of these things because as long as we are putting ourselves first, Jesus will not be well represented in the world. And if the church is going to live as the kingdom of God in these other kingdoms, then we must do as Jesus did who came to sacrifice himself for us that we might have life, who put his own rights aside that we might live. So as we close today, that's what our prayer is for. Our prayer is that God would help us to get over ourselves, to stop to seek to seek to stop drawing lines in our faith of who is in and who is out, to find the unity in Jesus that we have been given, to stop seeking conformity, but to have open and loving conversations with people that we may disagree with so that the body of Christ will be glorified in this place and that we would be citizens of the kingdom of God here. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we are so grateful that you love us as we are. We're grateful for the love and forgiveness you give us. We're grateful for the new purpose of life that you give us, Father. And God, we do struggle. We struggle with wanting power and influence for the kingdom in this place. But God, so many times the struggle for power and influence lead us away from what you want the kingdom to be. Father, help us to be committed to one another, to listen to one another, to have sympathy and compassion and love, to humble ourselves for the sake of the kingdom. And Father, may we not be divided by things that we don't agree on. Instead, may we be united on our agreement that we need you and your son and that he is what makes us who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.